We deal with death in many forms every day of our lives. The death of a relationship, the death of a career or a job, the death of innocence, or the death of a loved one. But if we are willing, these encounters can help ready us for a dignified conclusion to our own life and teach us to face that inevitability with some grace. I believe it is our personal right and our responsibility to make end-of-life decisions for ourselves. And it is the responsibility of legislators to sort out the role of governments, doctors, and families in helping ensure our right to make such a fundamental and difficult decision as the right to die. This is a tricky topic, and I know some people may not even want to engage, but it's something that I have uh, very, very strong feelings about, and I think it comes from my own personal experience watching uh, a father die a long and slow death from cancer and a mother suffering from dementia than Alzheimer's. So um, join us if you uh, if you want to learn a little bit more about this topic. We're so pleased to have with us Helen Long. She's the CEO of Dying with Dignity. This is an organization that's dedicated to fixing some of the rules. Helen, thanks for being with us. And I think we're just going to do a a mini background piece here just on the legislation because it was a Supreme Court ruling in I think 2015 and that's where the where this whole discussion on made medical assistance in dying uh, started so can you just bring us up to date yeah, so you're referring to the uh, the Carter case in 2015, which, yes, led to the legislation in 2016 that was introduced as Bill C-14 and became the medical assistance in dying legislation that we deal with today. Um, so fast track to 2019 and uh, the Truchon decision. So Jean Truchon and Nicole Gladue uh, at the Quebec Superior Court um, arguing that their exclusion from access to MAID as a result of the death not reasonably foreseeable clause uh, was discriminatory. And Justice Baudouin in that case ruled that, that the um, current legislation does in fact violate both Section 7 uh, and Section 15 of the Charter, um, the rights to life, liberty, and freedom, and that people with disabilities were in fact being discriminated against if they weren't near death. Mm -hmm. um, because they couldn't access made. So uh, the justice gave the government uh, um, six months to put the legislation in place. And then, of course, COVID happened. So there's been two extensions. And currently, the bill is at second reading in the House. The current deadline is December 18th to try and get that legislation changed. So it does, in fact, comply with the, the Constitution. And it'll come over to the Senate again, where it was the last time the chair of your board, uh, Jim Cowan, and I worked together. It was an interesting uh, process in the Senate because people gathered not on party lines, but on how they viewed this issue and really uh, tried to make some changes. There are two things um, with this new bill. So they've just called it a different number. It's now C7 as opposed to C14. If people hear us uh, referencing that. Uh, so when the court in Quebec said, look, you can't discriminate, it was really this whole idea of you can access medical assistance in dying if your death is foreseeable. Something like a cancer diagnosis and the doctors have given you 18 months to live or three months to live, um, then you can do it. 
But in many other situations, you still can't. And the one, of course, that troubles me the most is the kind of the catch-22 Canadians diagnosed with dementia or Alzheimer's. You you can't um, make a request in advance. (laughs) Never mind the, the, the 90 days, we'll come back to that. But you can't say at this point in your life, look, I don't want to live like that. And when the following conditions have arrived in my reality, then I want to bring this to an end. Is that going to change? Well, that's not going to change in this bill. So this bill, um, you know, it addresses two things. First, it addresses Trishon, and it does uh, specifically deal with the reasonably foreseeable clause by removing it and making it part of the safeguard process. The second thing it deals with uh, is what we would call Audrey's amendment or advanced Mm -hmm. consent. So in the case of Audrey Parker, she was a Nova Scotia woman. I think many Canadians are familiar with her story. Um, she had cancer and then developed a brain tumor. And Audrey's greatest wish was to spend one last Christmas with her family. Uh, unfortunately, the law currently says that you must be able to give consent at the actual time of the procedure. And uh, because of her condition, Audrey was very afraid that she would lose capacity and not be able to consent. So she ended up dying in November um, of 2018 instead of, you know, a month or two months later uh, because she was afraid of losing consent. So, so she bill- had to bring her life to an end earlier. Yes, Because absolutely. she wouldn't be able to give that consent. Yeah. And we have, you know, we hear this story all the time. Canadians, they're so afraid that they're going to end up in a situation where they can no longer consent. And yet they may continue to to live in insufferable pain and continuing to, um, you know, an intolerable situation. So they they opt to end their lives early. The bill does provide for advanced consent. So an individual in that situation assuming they've been assessed and approved and they've actually sent a date for their main procedure, if they lose capacity in the time between, the the clinician will be able to go ahead with the procedure and that waiver of final consent has been put in place. But that, again, applies to diseases or issues like cancer. Yeah, and Um, and you're absolutely right. Advanced requests will not be addressed at all. It's our hope, and I think the government has spoken about this on numerous occasions, that when the five-year parliamentary review that is required in the uh, existing legislation begins, hopefully very soon, um, that is one of the topics that needs to be uh, addressed and and considered. Two things on that. just recently, they just we've seen that there's a logjam on the Justice Committee because there are so many issues that the government has brought forward in terms of Indigenous issues, just a whole lot of them. But there's no room to kind of get it on the agenda. Uh, and, and I guess from my own point of view, the last time we went through this, there were promises that the government would study these issues and take it from point A to point B. But they studied the issues and they really didn't come to any conclusions. They just had uh, a discussion of the issues, but it didn't, it didn't move the, the yardstick. Yeah, that's true. I think, um, you know, I think we continue to, to hope that there is a way to move forward. I think getting to that parliamentary review, it is a requirement. So, you know, quite Mm -hmm. frankly, the government will need to figure out how to do it. Uh, Can we do it through perhaps a joint Senate House committee? Uh, Is there another way to 
to maybe get there. And I think, yes, the government did some work and certainly there was um, some academic work done. And even earlier this year, some consultation, a survey that over 300,000 Canadians participated in, Mm -hmm. but take all of that information. If it needs to be built on, build on it. Um, But they have to find a way to have this discussion. It's a requirement of the legislation. And we know advanced requests specifically, 85% of Canadians are supportive of advanced requests. Um, it's probably the number one thing that we get called about from Mm -hmm. Canadians who don't technically qualify today. And, you know, by continuing to deny that, we're just not just demonstrating the compassion and the care for, for people that we should be. Um, there has to be a way to get there. This is what surprises me because the, the Supreme court in the first case basically was way ahead of the government. They were they were more lenient. They were more open to this idea. And the government came in and put more constraint on it. And then we see it again with public opinion. I mean, if there was any other issue that 85% of the public agreed on, you'd probably see some government running to the head of the parade. Yeah, that's, uh, it is certainly overwhelming public support, I think, uh, for that specifically, but a number, a number of issues. And I think, you know, Canada still is at the forefront or close to the forefront, which is great. I think it's also wonderful that we now have five years, almost five years of experience. So we've got clinicians and Canadians who've been through this process, who, who can now speak to the experience that they've had in Canada. So all of that, I think, is helpful as we, we continue to try to move forward. Just let me stay on this issue for a bit because it, it does have to do, we've been told for years in this country um, that we should have a living will, that that would make it easier for family members or loved ones to make a decision or to help us make a decision in all our final days. There's the whole issue of power of attorney, which you have the right when you are of sound mind uh, to hand over decision-making to a lawyer or a third party. Why can't we translate that uh, into a reality for this issue because we I mean we have it on finances and how uh, families will be dealt with distribution of property animals all sorts of things it seems odd that we can't focus in on this yeah I mean I again I hope when we get to the parliamentary review and the discussion these are the things that we talk about and I yeah. think it's going to be important to make sure that we have the right safeguards in place um, but but yes I, I think you're right there must be a better way to get there one of the things that we really encourage people to do and particularly through the pandemic we've had a lot of calls about this is uh, what we call advanced care planning so having the discussion with your family around what you would like to have at end of life and we know that you know, that made can't be something that your family chooses and nor should it be. It should be an individual's decision. Um, But just having the discussion about what you would like to happen and what types of procedures you're you're open to or not open to, what your values are, what's important to you um, at the end in terms of your quality of life and your situation. So that in the event that you're not able to speak for yourself, the people that love you can speak for you and know what you would have asked for. So I think just, you know, with the pandemic this year, that's really highlighted that need um, to make those other plans. I want to ask you about a case that speaks to that, though, fairly directly in Nova Scotia, couple yes. where the husband had asked for uh, maid. He had been rejected and asked again and was approved. And his wife 
literally took him to court and said he, he couldn't make this decision. In the end, he was allowed to. Um, how does that sit as a precedent or was there anything in the activities or, or legal responses around this that either gives you hope or causes concern? Well, I mean, it was certainly very concerning to us to see him have to suffer for additional months, um, quite frankly, um, and while, you know, perhaps at risk of losing capacity. So uh, that was certainly very, very concerning. And I think we we felt, um, you know, just the suffering that he had to continue to endure was quite tragic. Um, I think it's it's wonderful that in the end he was able to access his right. And at the end of the day, I mean, this is a constitutional right that a Canadian has. And um, he followed the rules. He was assessed. He was declared eligible. Uh, they actually had multiple clinicians involved. Um, and at the end of the day, he was eligible for MAID. He should have been allowed to, to move forward. I know there are people who felt badly for his wife, and I'm I'm mm-hmm. sure it's a difficult a difficult thing to go through. Um, but that's why we encourage the conversation because at the end of the day, it's his decision. He is the one who gets to control his end of life and decide how he wants it to look. And and no one, no matter how much they care about you, no matter how close to that to you they are no one else should be able to take that choice away from you so we're we're pleased that he was eventually able to um make that decision and access made we are you know very sorry that he had to endure so much extended suffering to do so and again it comes back to that issue of advanced direct directives because he was able to continue to express his will uh despite pain and suffering many mm-hmm. are in a situation where they cannot continue to express that. So the decision implicitly is taken away from them. Absolutely. Let's talk about a couple of the other issues. Uh, I I just want to come back. There was a small, um, well, not small, I think a significant change, I guess, in this version of the legislation on the 90-day waiting period. Um, Just explain where we're at on that. Yeah. So for individuals who's, so we talked about the fact that, that currently your death has to be reasonably foreseeable. And Uh in the new legislation, uh, that may not be a requirement. However, they want to make sure that there's a safeguard in place around that. So in the event that you're assessed and approved for made, but your death is not reasonably foreseeable, there is a 90 day waiting period between the first assessment and the provision of made unless both assessors agree that the individual's loss of capacity is imminent. So, you know, there, there, it does make sense to have a safeguard. I think, I think the um, provision that capacity can impact uh, moving that timeline is good. I think there should perhaps be some consideration given to a, uh, maybe a shorter timeline. We know that Canadians who have opted to choose made uh, spend a lot of time thinking about it before they make the decision. So um, you don't need it, another 90 days. Exactly. <laughs> and again, it just extends that suffering, right? They already uh-huh. know what they want. In many cases, although the official assessment may not have occurred, they're already dealing with a clinician. They've already got a Um, you know, they've looked at their options, they've explored treatments and made those types of decisions. So 90 days may be longer than is necessary in all cases. And there should be some flexibility, I think, around that, that time frame. And how do you, I mean, do you want that 
purposely vague instead of, you know, instead of saying 30 days as opposed to 90 days or 10 days as opposed to 90 days, you want people to be able to make that judgment or is it better if there's a specific timeline? Well, I mean, I think we always feel fairly strongly that clinicians are those best positioned to make those decisions and to to know, you know, have they been involved? How long have they been involved? Uh, how long has the person been expressing the request? Um, so really, I think I think shorter than 90 days is probably ideal. Flexibility from clinicians is definitely uh, something that should be included. You mentioned the phrase assessor, and I think there is some flexibility. You don't have to have the world's greatest expert in disease acts. It can be somebody who's familiar with the case, but you need two people. Is that correct? Yeah, two people. And depending on the province, it can be a physician or it could be a nurse practitioner. And again, in the case of a death not reasonably foreseeable case, one of the safeguards is that one of the individuals must have some expertise in the condition. So not as you say that they're necessarily a specialist, but they have to have some experience and expertise in dealing with that that particular condition. So somebody dealing in palliative care or a personal home care worker, something like that. Yeah, probably more along the lines of someone who's had uh, experience in a specific condition. So, uh, um, you know, like a a specific type of arthritis or, um, you know, whether it's multiple sclerosis or a a disease state. So again, this is a question and it's it's partly because I come from a small town in Saskatchewan, which these things are, are great if you live in downtown Toronto or downtown Vancouver. You've got your choice of clinicians. If you've got a doctor who fundamentally disagrees with the idea of made, you can go somewhere else. You can seek other help. If you live in a small town, uh, and there are lots of rural parts across this country, you don't have a lot of options. No, that's true. I mean, one thing that the pandemic has brought us that has been helpful is, uh, I think, a greater appreciation and acceptance of telehealth. So uh, looking at virtual assessments in in many provinces, that is something that is allowed. Uh, And I think it it serves those individuals who live in remote or underserviced communities. That really does help to support them in this process. And that's, that's acceptable. In some provinces, not in all provinces. That's something we'd certainly like to see expanded. So does that need to be part of this legislation? No, that that becomes part of the, you know, as you know, health is uh, regulated provincially. So that would become part of the uh, provincial either regulation or perhaps at the college. It, It varies from province to province. I want to raise a couple of the other concerns that uh, that people have. And, and the one issue when it comes to mental health is in some ways related to the issue of Alzheimer's and dementia, because it might be considered a mental illness rather than a physical illness or some combination of the both. Um, but there are still, still um, grave concerns and restrictions on people who seek made medical assistance in dying because of mental health issues. They may be schizophrenic. They may have massive depression. They may have gone through all kinds of forms of treatment and nothing's working. So where where do those folks stand? 
Well, mental illness is specifically excluded from the uh, the new bill. Um, I think this is a this is obviously a very complicated issue, and I think there's some uh, differing opinions. I'm not a clinician, uh, but I think differing opinions in terms of. Uh, what a mental illness is uh, that will certainly impact uh, accessibility for those Canadians who who are in that situation. Uh, Again, when we look at the parliamentary review, one of the areas that was specifically identified and even talked about last time was the fact that mental illness is challenging and we need to take the time to get it right, but we do need to take the time and actually get it right. So um, there has to be an opportunity. We shouldn't be discriminating against those with a mental illness just because that's that's what they have. Um, they should have the same right. There's nothing you know, we have no reason to think that their mental suffering is any less than the physical suffering uh, that other Canadians are going through. We so, know, we all know people like that. Yeah, There's, we do. pain is real. Yeah, it's very real. And I think, you know, we hear stories. There's, if, if you visit our website, there's lots of blogs from people who are in those positions. So I think it's critical when they get to the parliamentary review and the sooner the better, quite frankly, uh, this is one of the three things that we really think they need to address. And then the issue of minors. Um, and I know if you take a look kind of around the world, the question of minors, it's, it's defined by age in many cases, uh, in some countries as young as 12, in other countries as old as 18, so somewhere in that range. Um, but the, the general response is, look, kids shouldn't be making these decisions, but we're not really always talking about chronologic, chronological age. No, we're not. We're talking about, I think, their capacity to make these decisions. And certainly when you look at other medical decisions, which, um, you know, treatments that could be life, um, you know, life ending or life continuing, I don't know how you want to look at that, but mature minors are already making these decisions. Um, and so there, there has to be a way for them to be considered, whether it's age or some combination of age and capacity. Um, it's certainly something that I think the medical system is more than capable of, of helping to define. So how do we, I mean, as you say, if there's a, a, a minor who is receiving treatment for cancer, they can at a certain point decide that they don't want to continue that treatment and say, mom and dad, I'm stopping this. So it's just that next step, is it? Well, I think it's, I mean, I think it's a similar um, in their minds, it can be a similar decision. I think the decision to stop treatment is one decision. Uh, uh, but then the next the resulting condition is eventually, you know, unbearable pain and unbearable suffering and, you know, having to take drugs to control the pain and then not being able to interact. Like that person should, regardless of their age, if they can make the decision to end their treatment, they should be able to make the decision to choose the end of life that is right for them. And is there any legal precedent in this country at all, or are you looking to other countries to help build a case? Yeah, we're, there's obviously no legal precedent in Canada right now that I'm aware of. Um, we would certainly look at what's going on in other countries. And, and as you note, it's a fairly wide, wide range. Um, but I think we will also look to the, um, the decisions around other health treatments and medical treatments that, that exist, and certainly to the expertise of those clinicians that work with mature minors. So 
The process is now that the bill is in the House of Commons and it will come to the Senate. So we always have this discussion amongst ourselves, particularly as senators, because we are at the last stop. <laughs> the, the sober second part before something becomes bill, uh, a bill. Do you take um, something instead of nothing? I mean, there have been some uh, things in this new legislation that will come that's been put forward in the House, some small improvements. Do you say, okay, let's let's take an inch and and uh, still work on the mile, or do you say, let's get it right and don't well, pass legislation? I mean, I think you can. I, you know, I think this bill because really this bill is it's not that huge. It's a it's a you know in terms of bills, it's a fairly um, comprehensive and tight bill, um, but also quite brief. And it deals with two core, at the end of the day, two core issues. The one which is required to be dealt with because it's unconstitutional from the Trushan decision. And the second being Audrey's amendment, which I think there was a lot of discussion around last time. And I don't, I don't think that there can be that much, um, you know, it seems like such a small thing to ask that someone can waive that final consent in order not mm-hmm. to end their life earlier than they would like to. So, you know, yes, I think we take this bill because we know that that parliamentary review is mandated by the legislation. It has to happen. So uh, we take this bill and then we take, um, we take more, more legislation, more discussion, more improvements that help Canadians to um, be supported, to show them compassion, uh, to ensure that they're able to access their constitutional right in a, in a way that they want to do. So take something to look at this as a step-by-step process and and perhaps there'll be other decisions in the courts along the way that will have the impact that the Quebec Superior Courts had, which they've said, you've got to go back and fix it. Yeah, that's always a possibility. Yeah. And I mean, the issue I guess we've got if if they don't act is that you have two different uh, levels of access in Quebec and the rest of Canada, and then that becomes another issue. Yeah, and that's something that absolutely becomes an issue. We've already, you know, we know there are six, uh, I believe it's six now individuals in Quebec who have been able to uh, move ahead and others waiting. Uh, we're mm-hmm. certainly hearing from Canadians in other provinces who who are, well, how, how can I do that? And, and there, there isn't anything right now, but I think the longer this goes on, uh, the more chance that, that there will be someone who says, okay, what's the next step? How do I ensure that I, in whatever province I'm in, um, Ontario or BC or, or Nova Scotia, how do I get what you can access in Quebec? Because it should be the same for all Canadians. Instead of people trying to fly to Switzerland or someplace to deal with this, if they can even possibly afford it. Two um, two other points before we begin to wrap this up. The assurances that need to be there for the disabled community uh, or the, uh, I'm not sure that's the right word anymore, uh, but people who are afraid that if they are not physically or mentally completely able, that they are vulnerable to people saying, you, you know, you're a drain on society, you cost too much. Um, there's real genuine fear there. Yeah, I think, I think there is fear. And I think, you know, certainly nothing about medical assistance in dying 
negates the need, the important need for appropriate services and supports. Um, at the same time, I don't think that we can discriminate against an entire group um, because of fear that they may not have a, a rational and legitimate desire to end their life. So I think continuing to put emphasis on uh, supports and services, ensuring clinicians are evaluating the situation and um, making sure that the individual is the one who's making the request and they're making it for the right reasons. I think those are critically important things that need to happen. Uh, but we can't, you know, we can't out of fear that we're not doing the right thing, um, discriminate against that group. Uh, they very, people may very well have a legitimate desire mm-hmm. to end their life. Their suffering may be intolerable for them. And at the end of the day, that should still be their decision. The other issue that I think is important, and we all see it, and perhaps COVID has um, shone a particular light on it, but the, the question of, of palliative care or even care for the for the aging, as we've seen, it's, to put it in the kindest possible terms, faulty at best. We've had people dying because of, yes, the, the, the virus, but also just because of lack of care. Yeah, it's been, I, I mean, I would go so far as to say horrifying, uh, terrible, um, unexcusable. Um, certainly, again, palliative care is a, a critical piece of the healthcare system. And I think uh, many Canadians access it and absolutely palliative hospice care should be available to any Canadian who wants to access. We know that uh, individuals who choose MAID, 82% of them do access palliative care. Um, these are all choices at end of life and there are no right or wrong answers. It's about what an individual wants, but the individual should be able to make that choice. And in order for that to happen, all of those resources need to be in place. So certainly, yeah, I agree. The the pandemic has shone a light on this. Um, the government at, at all levels, I think has committed to improvements and it would be wonderful to see those improvements happen. Are you satisfied that there are enough uh, practitioners in this country who are open to a discussion about made that people really from coast to coast to coast are able to access advice at the very least and and to access to made um, itself? Um, there's certainly a strong, I think, a strong cohort of individuals who are made assessors and providers. There are areas we know where, um, you know, I would call them underserviced areas, much as mm-hmm. there are in other areas of healthcare. So um, I do think there is a, a large group of clinicians who are committed to and prepared to continue to assess and provide made. And you know, we would hope that as education and information grows and expands and, and Canadians are continuing to talk about their journey uh, to made that that group will continue to grow. What do you say when you, I know you have a very extensive website and, and we'll post that too so that people can take a look. You've got advice for people that, that want to create a living will or a, an advanced directive of some kind. You've got suggestions for how they might be able to reach their members of parliament or write a letter to the prime minister. Um, what What's your single piece of advice to people who care about this and think they may want to access this at some point in their life for themselves or probably more likely for a loved one that they want to help? 
Yeah, I think for for any individual who's looking to access medical assistance in dying, I think that the critical thing is to have that conversation with your family and to talk to your clinician. Um, you know, there's a, in every province, there's a different, slightly different setup. There's care coordination centers and many of the local health community centers will help. Certainly you can reach out to us to get pointed in the right direction. Um, but having that, that conversation with your clinician and your family uh, is probably the most important starting point. And do that at, a, at an early point. Yeah, do it, do it early and do it often because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as you go through life, things change and the conversation you might have at 40 or 50 or 60 is not necessarily the same as the one you might have at 70 or or 80. So um, the more we talk about it, the more we normalize the fact that, that death, you know, death will happen. uh, How do you want it to happen? Mm -hmm. And the more we do that, the, the better and the easier it will become for people. When we've carved out a life for ourselves, a, a good life, and we've worked hard and we've done our best and we've had our raised our families and done all that, it just seems there should be no reason why that kind of dignified life needs to meet an undignified end. Yeah, I think you're correct. You have a good life. You should have the ability to choose a good death. Helen, thanks so much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you for having me, Senator. I yeah. appreciate it. Helen Long, she's the CEO of Dying with Dignity. And do um, go to their website if you're interested in this. There's a lot of very good information. We'll talk again when this legislation, when we see the process unfold. Thank you. I'll look forward to that. Thanks. Given our discussion today, it reminds me of the words of Charles Dickens, who once wrote that what is meant by knowledge of the world is simply an acquaintance with the infirmities of man. In other words, to be truly knowledgeable, we must recognize human frailty, the human condition. Some very wise words as we begin to deal with this issue in the Senate and in the House of Commons and across this country.